Good morning. My name is Bill Safestrom, and this morning our scripture reading is from 1 Peter. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 14 from the New American Standard Bible. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him, because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect Confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Sylvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. The word of the Lord. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. What doesn't kill you makes you grow stronger. I love that chorus because as we've been going through 1 Peter, that's what has kept coming to my mind. There's a lot about suffering and pain and heartache, and I really feel like uh, if Peter had had a theme song for that book, it would have been, hey, what doesn't kill you will make you grow stronger. So the uh, title of our sermon today, get my technical things here. All right. The title of our sermon today is No Pain, No Gain. I know you've all heard that term before, no guts, no glory, you know, all of that. And we all can relate to that, I think, to some extent. We are wrapping up this sermon series of Peter. I'm going to give you a little uh, view of where we've been before we head into where we are today. So like I said, we're wrapping up First Peter, and I feel like Um, this no pain, no gain has actually been, again, something that has been a theme of Peter's. I'm going to make sure it's still there. We've been cutting out a little bit. So if for some reason there's not a slide behind me, Barry, just wave your hand a little bit, and I'll know to click back on there. Okay. But only do it if you need to. All right. So (laughs) Peter is ending his letter to these Christians in Asia Minor with basically the same message that he started with back in 1 Peter. And it's, you're going to experience suffering for a little while, but that very suffering that you're going through is going to produce in you something that's much more valuable than any earthly comfort or treasure, and that is real faith. How many of you like to hike? Any of you like to hike? Quite a few used to. Yeah, (laughs) the idea of it sounds good. Well, I really like this uh, image behind me because... 
as you're hiking up, you know that there is some effort to get to your destination, whether it's the top of a mountain or it's a trail, but you really need to work at getting there. And you know that you're not going to get there unless you go through all of the things that you need to to get to the top. You even have special clothes and equipment for hiking, things that you need to get you to where you want to be. Well, it's really the same with our spiritual journey. Our faith can only grow through trials and suffering. That's just the way it is. Now, Peter states uh, that the Christian faith is exactly where God's grace is found. He says in 5.12, as Bill just read for us, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Now, if we're reading between the lines here, we can see that these Christians that he was writing to were doubting that fact. You see, they were facing persecution and suffering, and they were doubting whether they were even experiencing or could experience God's grace in this. Throughout 1 Peter, we have this reoccurring theme of suffering. Peter describes his reader's current situation as a fiery trial. Sounds pretty dramatic. From the beginning to the end, the theme of suffering is at the forefront. And he also reminds them about Jesus' suffering and that as Christians, they will share in the sufferings of Christ. Now, he tells them that the benefits or the gain is from the suffering or the pain. All of this is to help them see that the presence of suffering does not mean they are outside of God's grace. It's really quite the opposite. You see, you cannot experience the grace of God unless you're in the middle of suffering or trials. You just don't see it. You don't need it. Well, for me, that is easier said than done. In my suffering, I don't automatically think, oh, I'm experiencing the grace of God right now. As a matter of fact, my default is to wonder, what have I done that I'm being punished for? Why is this happening? Or even, where is God in it? But you see, I, like Peter's readers here, need to readjust my focus so that I can stand firm in God's grace, knowing that that's how he is building my faith. You know, I'm constantly reminded of Jesus' words to Paul. Remember when Paul asked to have his thorn in the flesh removed three times? We don't know what that thorn in the flesh was. We know it was some type of affliction. And he asked for that to be taken away. Jesus' words were not, okay, you are healed because now I know you're going to be able to serve me more powerfully, so I'm going to take this away. No. Jesus' words were, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Instead of healing you or taking this suffering away, I am going to show you even how much more powerful I am because I'm going to get you through this trial, this tribulation. Well, now we're going to move to our verses that we're going to be starting with today. Yes, okay. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, 
casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Now, verse 6 starts with this word, therefore. So that means that it's connecting from the previous verse, verse 5, which is where we were at last week when Pastor Peter was up here preaching. I'm going to remind you of what verse 5 said so that we can continue in this. You younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. So now that we know what the connection is, I'm going to read for you a paraphrase of 5, 6, and 7 together. Because God sets himself against those who lift themselves up, but gives unmerited favor to those who view themselves as lowly, lower yourself under God's sovereign dealings with you, that he might lift you up in due time. You lower yourself by throwing all your anxieties on him, knowing that he cares for you. Last week, Pastor Peter talked to us about the word humility in verse 5 and how it did actually mean to lower yourself. So that's what we're talking about here. Now, the Greek word for anxieties comes from a word that means divided. Anxieties or cares divide our minds so that we cannot concentrate on anything else. Someone defined worry as a small trickle of fear that meanders through the mind until it cuts a channel into which all other thoughts are drained. I'm going to read that again. A small trickle of fear starts out small, but it meanders through the mind until it cuts a channel into which all other thoughts are drained. Worries and anxieties distract us from the productive things God wants us to do. They consume us by diverting all our thoughts into those channels of fear. Does that resonate with you? I actually was able to uh, have a little uh, test on this yesterday in real time. I just love it when I prepare a sermon because every day God gives me another example for me to share, which is, can be really difficult. My sister, I called her yesterday morning. She lives in Arizona. And she sounded terrible when she answered the phone. I said, gosh, did I wake you up? Which she's usually up early. She said, no, I've been in ER all night and I just got home. I went, oh my goodness, what's going on? So she started to tell me things that happened, her symptoms and what they did and all of this. And uh, I, of course, was very worried, am very worried, and I'm thinking about all the things that, did they test this? Did they test this? Are they looking for this? And being the person that I am, I'm taking it to the absolute worst case scenario right off the bat. And so I had to all of a sudden realize this is completely consuming me, and I cannot work on what I'm supposed to be doing right now for God. And I was able to, all right, Lord, I got to stop this, and I got to turn this over to you, because this has taken a really bad turn, and it's consuming me. And that's the anxiety. So why does God instruct us to humble ourselves in times of trials? Well, because at the very heart of anxiety is a proud notion that we can handle things ourselves. We who talk about trusting Christ 
for everything in the songs we sing, in the prayers we pray, in even just our talk with each other. We really trust ourselves and in our own abilities to work through our trials and suffering. We don't know what it really means to completely cast our cares on him until he pulls the rug out right from under us through some trial or suffering that is overwhelming and just too big for us to handle. And even then, sometimes we still scramble for some gain of control. You see, at the root of self-reliance, of trying to do things on our own, is pride. And we know what God thinks about pride. Now, this is a really huge struggle for me. I really struggle with self-reliance. I want to be able to handle it on my own. I want to be able to get through this and come up with a solution and make it happen. And to be fair, my background sort of set me up for that. When I grew up in our, in our home back in Indiana, we had a fairly dysfunctional family, and us kids were left to our own devices many times to figure out how we were going to work things out. So I learned early on that I really couldn't rely on anybody else. I had this one situation that I, I go back to where I was in kindergarten, so I was five or six, and for whatever reason, the kindergartners didn't have school one day. You know how that happens? The schools will say, oh, this grade doesn't have it or this school. And Anyway, so we didn't have school one day. I knew that. I told my parents, hey, we don't have school tomorrow. I don't know. that They must have sent a note home with me or something. I don't remember. But they didn't believe me. Didn't call the school, didn't check with other parents, just said, no, you must have school. So the whole time I'm getting dressed, getting ready to go to school, I'm thinking, these idiots, why don't they listen to me? I know what's going on, but okay, I know how this is going to play out. So I get dressed, get in the car, dad takes me to school, I get out of the car, I go in the school, walk to my kindergarten classroom, it's all dark, walk into the office, hey, dad dropped me off for school, well, why are you here, there's no school, I know there's no school, just call my dad. So he comes back to pick me up and never says a word. But it was just this sense of, I, I got to take care of things, because I can't count on anybody else. However, my present behavior is not excused by that. I cannot blame my parents for that kind of an upbringing, for making me you know, this way today. Because you know what? I'm a child of God now. I have a perfect heavenly father who loves me. My parents loved me, don't get me wrong. And we had a lot of good times. They just didn't quite know how to care for us very well. So God loves me, but not only loves me, but he does know how to take care of me. And if I am going to claim to be his child, I need to act like I'm his child and act like he is my perfect heavenly father. You know, the only way to cast your cares on him is to embrace that life here on earth. It's just too big for us to handle on our own. It just is. There are times, and I'm sure you can relate to this, where you kind of come to the end of it. You come to the end of yourself, 
that there's any hope of anything left in my own bag of tricks to get me out of this situation or deal with my circumstances. But you know, that's when I can honestly have a conversation with God and say, all right, I give up. I've tried everything else. It's not working. I really give it to you now. But you know, our Heavenly Father wants us to come from that place of humbleness, lowering ourselves under his sovereignty to begin with. Not last resort, but to begin with recognizing I have no way to handle this on my own, and I'm going to give it to you right now. We need to go straight to him with our anxiety. Now, verse 8 here says that be sober of spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I'm sure you've heard that before. So, that's your picture of Satan. He's a roaring lion waiting to devour you. I'm sure MGM would not have been thrilled with that. However, Peter has just told us, hey, relax, give it all to God, don't worry about it. But all of a sudden, in the very next verse, he's telling us the opposite. He's saying, wake up, be alert, be of sober spirit. Another quote I came across was, God does not make his children carefree in order to make them care less. You see, it's in times of suffering and trials that we are most vulnerable to the enemy of our souls, that roaring lion who is prowling about waiting to pounce. Think about Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus, before he began his earthly ministry, was in the wilderness praying and fasting for 40 days. He was certainly spiritually, emotionally, physically, mentally very weak. It was at that point Satan chose to strike. And not only that, he used God's own words to try to twist him just a little bit to have Jesus give in and ask to be relieved of his suffering. If that's how it happened with Jesus, we can certainly expect that for ourselves. If we're consumed with anxiety, we're open targets to that roaring lion. It's a time when we're prone to listen to the lies that Satan tends to use. When it comes to dealing with the devil, Christians tend to have one of two extremes they go to. Either Satan is behind absolutely everything that's gone wrong, or Satan has absolutely no power and we should just ignore him. The former view has us blaming all our suffering on Satan when, in fact, much of what we experience from our own mistakes, our own sin, or just life in a fallen world. We give him way more credit than he deserves. Satan is a very powerful, unseen foe, but he is a defeated foe. He is neither omnipresent nor omnipotent. So Peter does describe Satan as your adversary, and his strategy to devour you is to hit you when you're under a trial. Have you ever heard this voice? 
God just isn't strong enough to handle this. I have no idea how he can get me out of this. Or clearly he doesn't care for me. Why would he be allowing me to go through this? Or some Christian I am, he's not going to forgive me again for that same sin. You know, when I am preparing a sermon, I go through a lot of those things. You know, it's, it's an effort, it's a struggle, and you get to the end, and all of a sudden, what I hear is, oh, this is so lame. Nobody's going to want to hear that. Just start over. And that's just what I hear from my husband. So you can imagine what Satan is trying to tell me. Well, in order to resist the devil, we need to turn those very thoughts over to God. You see, Satan's power is diminished when I instead turn to God and say, Lord, right now, I don't know how you're going to handle this. I I admit that to you. Or, Lord, I feel like you don't care about me, like you don't see my situation, and I'm really doubting that you're here. Or, Lord, I am so embarrassed to come back to you with this same sin again. But out of obedience to your word, I am going to ask your forgiveness, and I am going to accept it, because I know that is true. When we turn from Satan, and we turn those thoughts to God, and don't ignore them or push them down, they are real. God knows you have them anyway. All of a sudden, Satan's power is gone. He will flee. There is nothing left for him there, and he'll need to find his lunch elsewhere. So in verse 9, Peter is encouraging these persecuted Christians by reminding them that their brothers and sisters in Christ are all going through the same thing. And isn't there a great um, feeling when you know someone's kind of in the same boat as you, right? As they say, someone's going through the same thing. Last summer when my husband was going through cancer treatments, my really good friend from school, all of a sudden her husband was diagnosed with cancer. And that timing was a gift to both of us to be able to share with each other and talk with each other about things that some other people just couldn't quite understand. So to hear that other people are going through what you're going through is very comforting. And this is what Peter was trying to do for these Christians. He's talking about their suffering for their faith because that's what they were going through. But I also believe that the general suffering that we go through in this life is applicable. Now, the word I want to focus on, which you probably have guessed because it's highlighted, is accomplished. As I was studying this passage, that word kept jumping out at me. Don't we all want to accomplish things? Don't we all want to talk about our accomplishments? But really, don't we all want to talk about our kids' accomplishments, right? We are so proud of when we work hard and do something. I had never thought of sufferings or trials as accomplishments before, but here it is. So no pain, no gain really relates to our accomplishments even here on earth, right? I'm sure that each of you can think of something that you worked really hard for, whether it was in school or a job or a relationship, something that you toiled over and then you got this, uh, this trophy or this award. Well, I have this 
trophy here that I cling to. It says, world's greatest mom. I'm going to believe it, okay? So I don't know which kid gave it to me. I really should have kept track of that, right? But anyway, um, I'm sure that this is an amazing accomplishment that uh, we're all saying at this point, me being their mother. So that's an accomplishment of mine. And then we also had a lot of people graduating, right? If you were in some type of a graduation, raise your hand. I want to see how many had some graduating going on. See, we've got some things. It's whether it's a degree or, you know, all the, eight, all the different classes. Kindergartners even graduate now, I hear. So uh, we like to give everybody a little pat on the back. That's great. So we had a lot of graduates making that accomplishment. And that takes a lot of effort. We also had last weekend the USA uh, the Golf Championship with Jordan Spieth here, and that was quite an accomplishment. I was so sucked into this golf tournament to begin with because it was at Chambers Bay, and I wanted to see how they were going to portray the Northwest, and of course that was pretty much a 50-50 kind of thing. Um, but it was really fun to see those golfers out there, and he had quite an accomplishment Now, I got to say, I was really pulling for Jason Day. I felt so bad for him out there with that dizziness, right? I'm just like, oh, Lord, please help him get through this. But uh, it was great that that Jordan Spieth, he seems like such a nice guy. So that's a huge accomplishment. And then there's a picture of me here. And my accomplishment is several years ago, I got my permanent credentials with the Evangelical Covenant Church. And that was a real accomplishment for me. I had to go back to school, and it was at a time when I was really struggling with my health and even questioned halfway through if this could be done and was ready to quit. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, and my power is going to be made perfect in your weakness. So that was an accomplishment of mine. So what does suffering accomplish? If it's accomplishing something, let's find out what it is. Well, first of all, suffering accomplishes the building of our faith. 1 Peter 6 and 7, and actually, I have it on this cool board from our um, women's retreat. I'm going to read it to you. It says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Here's why. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I love this verse. And this shows us that our trials and our suffering are for the very purpose of building our faith. It was really interesting that I, again, got to live this out the week before, uh, we had our women's retreat. My daughter-in-law and I had planned to speak at the retreat. We started our planning back last November, and that's when we picked these verses. And uh, so she was going to do two talks, and I was going to do two talks, and we had it all put together. And the day before she was supposed to fly out here, um, my son called me and said, Mom, Elise can't come. She's in the hospital right now with a tubal pregnancy. And I, oh my goodness. So that was very, very difficult, first of all, feeling terrible that this was happening. And then now what am I going to do? And so 
the Lord, it was not wasted on me that these were the verses we picked long ago when God knew this was going to happen. It was not a surprise to him. And he came through and he helped me how to write some more uh, of the talks and it all went very well. But it was one of those, I'm living this in real time. My faith is being tested by fire and what do I believe right now? What do I believe about God? You see, we have a history of how God has been with us in the past every time we encounter a new trial. I think about it like bricks. Like you start laying bricks and the wall gets higher and higher. And with each new trial, you have another brick. And every time another trial comes up, you can look back and go, oh yeah, that wall's getting bigger. I am seeing God's faithfulness to me over years' time. And I'll tell you, when I'm having trouble figuring out, is God really being faithful to me? I sit down and I recount all those times that God has been faithful to me and my faith is stronger because of it. Next, suffering also conforms us to the image of Christ. In 2 Corinthians, it says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. You see, we are meant to become more and more like Christ. Now, maybe your suffering is from a broken or a hurtful relationship. If you've been transformed into the image of Christ, it's a whole lot easier to respond to that person the way Christ would respond. How did he respond? He forgave his enemies. He loved the unlovable. He put the relationship first and being right second. I want others to see the image of Christ in me, not my own human fallen nature. The other way that we can be more like Christ is when Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane before he was taken away, he said, and he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup be passed from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. You see, We need to be more like Jesus in that garden. And we need to desire God's will for us more than our will for us. That is a huge accomplishment if you can get to that point. I know. And the third thing that suffering accomplishes is it puts our temporary life in perspective. While we look at not the things which are seen but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen, they're temporal. But the things which are not seen, they're eternal. They will last forever. When we are suffering, we are reminded that this place is not our home. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Peter, back in the first chapter of this book, he addresses his readers as aliens, twice, foreigners, This is where you are right now, but this is not where you belong. I think that we cling to this life 
because it is what we see and touch and taste and hear every day. But this is temporary. This is not real. We can have an eternal perspective and it will ease the effects of our suffering because we're seeing it in a bigger picture. Focusing on Jesus helps everything else to become smaller, less important, and even dim. The pain is less painful in the light of the ultimate gain, which is eternity with Christ. So here's the good news. Our suffering will only last for a little while, it says. Now, I know from firsthand experience that our suffering does not feel like a little while. And many of you have been dealing with things for years, too. And it feels like it's forever a lifetime. However, in light of eternity, this is just a blip on the timeline screen. And that's what we need to realize. You see, the point is all suffering will come to an end. The verse goes on to say that while we're in the midst of the trial, God will give us the grace that we need to endure anything that the suffering is bringing to us. And that way, God can accomplish his work in each of us. And what is God's work in us? Well, his work in us is to be transformed into Christ's image. It's to realize that this is just uh, temporary. And it's to also build our faith. That's the work God wants to do in us. He himself is going to be the one who's going to complete this process of establishing our faith so that we can stand firm in it and be equipped to serve others. Suffering can either make you better or it can make you bitter. And it depends on you. Paul's letter today is very applicable to every one of us here. You've all had times of suffering, and my bet is a lot of you are going through it right now. This last year has been a really challenging time for our family. My husband has dealt with cancer, Parkinson's disease. My daughter-in-law has lost two babies in four months. And then you have all the other things that life throws at you. It's been tough. But I can honestly say when I look back, God has been there and has provided the grace needed every step of the way. That is what Peter is talking about here. The suffering isn't going to go away, folks. It's here to stay while we're here on earth. But how do we get through it? Do we get better or do we get bitter? So is there a care or a point of anxiety in your life right now that you need to cast on God, like really cast on God and really trust him for that? And what do you need to do to resist that roaring lion who is roaming about waiting to devour you? Maybe you need to get into God's word more and read what is true so that you can stop listening to the lies of Satan that are not true. Maybe you need to get a prayer partner, somebody who can be in this with you and pray with you through this so that you can experience God's grace. And how about the suffering that God wants to do a deeper work in your life through? What does he want to accomplish in you through the suffering that you are going through right now? 
it might be bringing you to a point where you're honestly able to say, Thy will, Lord, not mine. And last, what pain are you avoiding that could bring you a huge gain in your relationship with Jesus? Is there something that you are avoiding, that you don't want to face, that you don't want to go through, that if you get to the other side, you are going to be in a much better place in your relationship with the Lord? I don't know. Don't waste the suffering. If it doesn't challenge you, it doesn't change you. Suffering allows the challenge in your life to change or transform you so that the work of God can be accomplished in your life. There is no other way. I wish I had better news for you, but his grace is sufficient for any circumstance or suffering or trial you will ever face. That I can assure you of. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you want to accomplish in our lives. God, we don't thank you that we have to suffer, but we thank you for the grace you give in the suffering. And now, Lord, I pray that each of us would know exactly what it is you want us to take away today, that we would be changed and transformed people, trusting in you, having our faith built, becoming more Christ-like, and realizing that this is only temporary and that eternity with you is going to be worth it all. In your name we pray. Amen.